At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Why don't you open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's hard to believe we've already arrived at the last chapter of 1 Timothy. But we're going to continue this series this week and next. And then we've got another exciting series that we're going to be going into uh, with you. But today we get a chance to talk about how our faith should uh, impact our work. That we should take our faith beyond Sunday, but we should take our, our faith into the workplace, and I believe it's going to be a huge blessing to you. Now, primarily our text speaks today to those who are employees, those who uh, have the responsibility of responding to or working for someone who has authority over them, but I'm going to also look at a text real briefly that speaks to those who are in leadership, maybe you own your own company, or maybe you're in a significant leadership position in the marketplace. What is the gospel has to say to you, but I just want you to know, big picture, the Bible has much to say about our work life. So don't think that the Bible is just a religious book that only speaks to how we worship at church, but the Bible is written for all of life. How many have seen that? That the Bible is written for all of life. There's no area of life from parenting to the way that we go about our relationships to our marriage, all of those things, including work, the Bible wants to speak to us about. I want to read the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and then I want to get to uh, another verse that I think is really important. Let's read the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and, excuse me, the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Now, from the outset, we encounter a few words that are not typical to our normal vernacular, in particular, as we talk about work. For example, by the show of hands, who has used the word bondservant this week? I didn't think so. The fact of the matter is, is that by using terms like bond, servant, and master, it forces us to do one of the most important practices of all good Bible study. When you are studying scripture, the first question you must ask is, what did this text mean to the original audience? Before you ask, what does it mean to us here and now? You need to ask, what does it mean? What did it mean to them then and there? Knowing that the Bible is both 
time lists, but also written in time to a particular group of people or original audience, though it has implications for all of God's people throughout all ages. So the original audience, I'm going to argue that the current application, the best place uh, of application for this for us is uh, work, our employment, uh, those of us who are employees with employers. But the original audience would have been living in first century Rome. And in first century Rome, it is estimated in their economy that about 75% of the people would have fallen into this category of bond servants. Now, I don't want you to think of transatlantic race-based slavery. Some of you may even have the term slave in your translation. The ESV, I think, does an accurate job of translating this because there's a distinction between the two. But this would have been primarily is economic servant servanthood. This would have been primarily the vast majority of the 75% of people in first century Rome that were bond servants were bond servants because of one of two reasons. Either they owed a debt to someone and they could not repay that debt. So in that day, what was typical or normative was for you to go to the person and say, I can't pay you back, but I will work for you. I will be a bond servant to you until the debt is repaid. And there were rules and laws that gave limits even to that so that someone couldn't be a perpetual bond servant. Everybody following with me. The other group that would have fallen to that category would have been people who just didn't have enough money to care for themselves. You could go and offer yourself out as a bond servant in exchange for that person who would have been given the title of master in that day, caring for you and your family. It wasn't until the 16th century, much, much, much later, that race-based slavery, slavery based off of skin color, came into the into play. So I don't want us reading back into the text something that would have been totally foreign to first century Roman people, the, the original audience of the text. Everybody with me, right? So the place where this becomes most applicable for us in this day and age is as it pertains to work. And what is clear is that Paul is speaking to those who are employees about their responsibility to their employers. But before we get into what he says specifically to them, I want to look at the other side of the coin. I want you to know that the Bible speaks to both sides of the coin. So maybe you are the person who either uh, owns the company or maybe you're in a significant leadership role, marketplace leadership role, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Now, everybody keep your finger there on uh, 1 Timothy 6, but turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 and look at what it says. Verse number 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now notice what it's saying. Since the gospel has come to us, 
It should transform the way we treat one another in every category. And if you are um, a, a person who is an authority over people who work for you, you should be known as somebody who treats them justly and fairly. And his appeal is to the fact that we have a master who is in heaven. Now, there's two implications of this. The first implication of this is that I ought to be treating those who work for me the way Christ treats me. And how many can say by the show of hands that Christ has been gracious to you? That doesn't mean that there's no standards. It doesn't mean there's not an expectation of performance. It doesn't mean that you have to throw it out and have no culture of expectation within your company. It doesn't mean that from time to time you won't have to have tough conversations. It doesn't mean that you might not have to let someone go. But even in those moments, you want to make sure you do it in a way that is marked by fairness and being just. You should be known, the person who's worked for you, even if it has to end in separation, should be able to say, man, that was a fair person. That they, they, they were a kind person. That they treated me justly. Hopefully people aren't walking away from working for you saying to themselves, I don't see any of his or her faith reflected in the way that they uh, led out in the marketplace. Hopefully they see a direct correlation. Even if they don't believe in your Jesus, hopefully they see how Christ has so impacted your life that you become a more compassionate a more fair and just-minded person to work for. Everybody see that? Right. Now, there's a lot that the Bible has to say to those of you who are in marketplace leadership or own your own companies. I encourage you to study that out. But let's go back now to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, we, we have two verses to deal with. Now, in order to deal with these two verses, I got to let you know something about how those of us who study the Bible and, and teach the scriptures approach the text. Now, there are two types of statements that are made in the New Testament. Now, just follow me. It's going to sound a little nerdy, but it'll help you in the long run. Two types of statements. The first type of statement is what's known as an indicative statement. An indicative statement is a statement of identity. That's when the Bible declares who we are. So when I say that we are sinners saved by grace, that's an identity statement. That's an indicative statement. The primary indicative statement of the New Testament is that you and I are in Christ. That's what we're told over and over again, that the top line identity marker for you and me is that we are in Christ. That means that if somebody asks you, who are you? Your primary or first response should not be your profession. It shouldn't be your race. It shouldn't be your gender or your geography. It's not that those things aren't true about you me. It's just that those are secondarily true about us. The primary thing that defines us is that we are in Christ. How many praise God for the fact that we are in Christ? We are redeemed, in other words. Amen? Well, the second type of statements that you encounter in the New Testament are what were known as imperative statements. Now, an imperative statement is a statement of how we ought to live in light of who we are. 
in light of who we are in Christ, how now ought we to live? And what we're about to encounter in these two verses or what we have encountered in these two verses are imperative statements that say, because you're in Christ, that should make a difference. Because the gospel has come to you, you should live differently than someone who has not encountered Christ, who has not encountered the gospel. In other words, the whole world is asking, does Christ make a difference? Does the Holy Spirit in a person's life make a difference? Does the gospel make a difference? Now, what do you think the answer is? Now, you guys are quiet. What do you think the answer is? Yes, it should be a bold, loud, raucous, yes. We should say, yes, Christ makes a difference. But what if we couldn't speak? What if the only sermon you could preach was your lifestyle? What if all people saw were how you lived? And let's be honest, most of the people in our lives don't see us on Sunday morning. So what if all people saw was how you lived Monday through Friday? What if all your coworkers or your boss saw was how you lived on Sunday? Would they say that Christ makes a difference in the way that you work? That's what Paul is getting at. Now, before we dive into verse number one, let's remember the whole context of this, what he is trying to drive home is that Christians under authority serve a higher authority. He's going to tell us to honor those who have authority over us, but in many ways, it's an indirect honor. Not that I don't appreciate them, but I'm honoring them because I'm honoring God. I'm respecting them because I'm a Christian and God has called me to respect him. In other words, I am honoring them not because they're Christians, but because I'm a Christian. And notice that I've tried to drive this home. The Apostle Paul has driven this home in a number of different categories of relationships, all having to do with authority. For example, children obey your parents. He's told us to respect and honor those in political position. Now he's getting to your bosses or your employers. We honor these folks, not because they necessarily have lived honorably, but we honor them because we know we're under a higher authority, and that's what causes us to respect our authority. Everybody with me? Verse number one. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, I love that he starts off by telling us who this verse speaks to. He says, let who? All. Let all. Not some, not a few, but all. Now, how many in here are retired? Show me your hands if you're retired. All right, don't check out on me now. Because your temptation is going to say that this verse is great for all the working saps in the world, but this doesn't have anything to do with me. But remember what he said at the end of verse number two, teach and urge these things. So even if you're not presently working, even if you're retired or semi-retired, you're still responsible for spreading the gospel, the good news of who we are in Christ and how we should live in light of the gospel now coming and taking over our lives. So even if you're retired, you gotta stay locked in to, for the rest of this 20 minutes or so that I'm gonna go. All right. So then he goes on to say, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants. 
How many can be honest and say sometimes that's how work feels? It feels like a yoke. Anybody ever been there before? All right. Now, what is, what is a yoke? For those of you who don't know it, again, another term that we often don't use. All right. I stayed up all night scouring the World Wide Web to find a couple of photos for you so you get a picture what a yoke looks like. All right. So I asked the team to put it up. First off, this is, this is a yoke. It was a wooden contraption that was made for two oxen that were going to be plowing the field. So they would put their necks in there and they would plow and a person would be behind them. And that's how they would go about doing their work. Now, let's go to the next photo. Next photo. Uh, this is what I could get. The best I could get all night. I studied all night, searched into that. This is the best photo I could get. So, these are the two oxen that have the job, the arduous work of plowing the field while a person behind them is reaping the harvest or receiving the benefit. And how many can say sometimes work feels like this? Amen? Now, if your boss is here, do not raise your hand. Should not have done that. How many can say sometimes parenting feels, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand, right? There's a lot of relationships that feel like this. I want to stop right there before I get in trouble. There's a lot of relationships at times that feel like this. But if you feel like your Monday mornings are a yoke, if you feel like work is a yoke or parenting is a yoke, or marriage is a yoke. And I want you to remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In other words, Jesus says, this yoke was made for two. You're on one side, but you're not alone. Praise God. He enters into the yoke with us. How many thank God? I know so many of us want him to change our circumstances, but sometimes and he might do that. He might give you a better boss. He might give you a different job. I'm not saying stop praying for that, but even if he chooses not to, what he is saying is you're not in it alone. I will enter into that yoke with you and I'll take, I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll take the brunt of it so that your part can be easy and light. And how do you make it easy and light, Jesus? All I'm asking you to do is obey. All I'm asking you to do is trust me. Trust and obey, for there's no better way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's all he's asking us to do. Amen? Well, this first verse is dealing with non-Christian masters, non-Christian bosses, non-Christian employers. And what does he say we need to do for them? He says we need to regard them, our own masters, as worthy of all honor. In other words, towards non-Christians, show honor to uphold the gospel. He says, honor them, respect them. Your response needs to be, I want to do the best I can to honor you. Again, because, he goes on to say, because of the name of God and because we don't want the teaching or the gospel to be reviled. In other words, Christians should be known as such great workers that corporations and companies are scouring the world over to hire us because we do such good work. 
Now it's quiet in here because the sobering question is, are we known as that? Are Christians known for having such a positive impact on the workplace, having such a great attitude, working so diligently that companies say, we may not believe in your religion, but we cannot deny the impact it has on the type of worker you are. We want more Christians to come work for us. I pray that that becomes what we're known for. And you can't control what the whole body is known for, but you can embrace that you're one representative of the entire church family. And when you go to work on Monday morning or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or whatever shift you work, you are representing the gospel before your coworkers and you might be the only gospel they ever read. And so it's your responsibility, my responsibility. And so I would recommend that we not go to work in the morning before we tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we read the scripture, when you wake up in the morning, before you go off to work, think about Jesus being in that yoke with you. Read your Bible, pray, ask for his strength and his help, and then go to work. Isn't it amazing what a little coffee and the Holy Spirit can do? Amen. Now, what this also obliterates, friends, is this lie that the only way you and I can have power and influence to change the culture is if we're in positions of control. We've been taught this lie that if we don't control the House, the Senate, the White House, if we don't sit in the seat of power, that somehow we can't influence the culture or society. Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. If Christ dwells in you, even if you're in a subordinate position, you can make an impact on people's lives. And because people control and govern institutions, the way that you change institutions Institutional structures is by changing the hearts of people. That's why we need the gospel, and you're a carrier of that. And if you carry the gospel into the workplace, I don't care what position you have, you can make an impact. Let me give you one, one, one example of this. I got a friend who shared his testimony publicly often, and, and so I feel comfortable sharing a little bit of it. This friend is a business owner who for years and years lived a very ungodly life. He would tell you he was a womanizer, unfaithful to his wife. He was cutthroat in business. Whatever it took for him to win is what he did. He was hard on his staff and his employees, and that's how he was living life. But he had two women who were receptionists. They were administrators at his company, and they did really good work. They were both Christians who often would say to him, we're praying for you. They would often talk to him about one day we hope that you become a follower of Jesus. And because of how great of workers they were, he tolerated their religious talk. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They were such good workers that he kind of put up with the nonsense of their religious talk. And so occasionally they would give him tapes of their favorite preacher. How many remember cassette tapes? (laughs) 
600 BC or so. Anybody remember what I'm talking about? So they would give him cassette tapes of Charles Stanley, which was their favorite preacher. And he didn't tell them, but at the time he would be listening to those tapes and they would go to work on his heart, but he wouldn't say anything to these ladies. Well, eventually one day he's cutting his TV on Sunday morning. He sees Charles Stanley, this preacher whose tapes he's been listening to, and he starts watching them. And then eventually Charles Stanley gives the invitation to make Christ your Lord. And right there in his bedroom, he falls to his knees and he says, God, my life is a mess. I need a savior. And he asked Jesus to come into his heart to be a savior. God so radically transformed his life that him and his wife reconcile with one another. He is living faithful before Jesus, faithful to her, faithfully uh, spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, loving his children on behalf of the Lord. He is a totally different man than what you would have encountered before Christ, all because two receptionists didn't care about their position. They knew their God was mighty enough to work through them regardless of what position they held in the company. So don't tell me you can't have influence if you are a subordinate position or if you don't have power. If Christ be for us, he is more than the world against us. Amen? Amen. So then Paul goes from switching from what do you do if you work for a non-Christian to a Christian. Now, before I go into verse number two, let me just give you the parameters on verse number one. You only have to do what your bosses tell you to do as long as it's not immoral or illegal. Right? If they're asking you to do something immoral that contradicts the word of God or illegal in an honorable way, in as much honor as you can, you have to say, I respectfully can't do that for you because that would be dishonoring my heavenly authority. And I got to honor my heavenly authority before I honor my earthly authority. But anything outside of immoral or illegal, you got to do it. There's no exemption just because they're hard or they're a jerk. There's no exemption for jerk bosses. All right? They may be hard. And I know the vast majority of you may work for hard people, but we honor them not because they're Christians, but because we are Christians, knowing that if we live this way, God will get at their heart. Amen? If you can't say amen, just say ouch. All right, verse number two. He goes on to say, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, what is Paul dealing with here? What Paul is dealing with here is the fact that the gospel that had been preached to the church in Ephesus was a gospel that said, regardless of your social status, we are now equal in Christ. Joint heirs of promise, equal in value, equal in worth. The Imago Dei, the image of God, is just as much imprinted on me as it is on you. So all of the ranking and hierarchy of the world doesn't apply in the church. In the culture, masters were considered superior or more significant than bond servants. Bond servants were inferior or less significant. But when we walk into the church together, we are equal in Christ. We take communion together. We worship side by side. We receive the promises of the gospel together. In Jesus, there is neither bond 
nor free, but all redeemed by the blood of the lamb. How many thank God for that, right? But the risk of that, the risk of that as it pertains to work is that familiarity has the risk of breeding contempt. How many have ever been advised by somebody, don't go into business, don't ever hire family or friends? Anybody ever had that advice given to you? How many have violated that advice and lived to regret it? Don't raise your hand, they might be here. All right, but some of us have experienced that because why? You hire a family or a friend and they think, hey, the rules don't apply to me. I mean, we were just at Thanksgiving dinner together. How can you now tell me I have a report due on, on Monday? How can you tell me there's a deadline? How can you tell me that the rules of work apply when we were just hanging out? We went to the ball game together. We were having fun. And so that's set up in a lot of people's minds this sense that I can't get too close to the people I lead because then they won't honor expectations. But what Paul says is this. He says, listen, if you have a believing master or boss or a person in authority, don't disrespect them on the grounds that they're a brother. Don't look at them and say, because you're my brother in Christ, rules don't apply. No, your disposition needs to be to serve them all the better. Serve them all the better. The Greek behind that phrase, all the better, speaks to degree of quality, that the quality of your work should be even better for the brother or sister in Christ who has authority over you because you know that the benefit of that work is going to a believing brother or sister and the body of Christ as a whole is gonna benefit from your work. So I should be working for them all the more. I should give even greater quality of work. I should put even more time and investment into the project or the assignment or the report or whatever it is I'm assigned to do. Friends, this has huge implications in the way we approach Monday through Friday. And my prayer for you is that you would know two things. Number one, that all work has dignity that all of it is honorable before the Lord, that God is not just looking at our Sunday mornings, but he's looking at the way we carry ourselves throughout the week as well. But I would also pray that you would know that because the gospel has come to us, that one day we will have to give an account before God, both as those who are in authority and those who are in a subordinate role and have authority over us. May we be able to live in a way that honors God no matter what the work I want to close and read to you um, a quote. Years ago, I was invited to write an article for an outlet on a theology of work, which is one of my passions. And as I was scouring the scriptures to see what the Bible had to say about it, I, uh, in my research, came across a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who has so many wonderful quotes. But he says this concerning work. Listen to these words. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. I love that. Can you imagine being given a broom 
and giving the job that feels menial to you and being told by someone that your responsibility in this season is to keep the street in front of the company or in front of the storefront or the business or whatever, to keep it clean. That's all you have the responsibility of doing is just streeping, uh, sweeping that street. Dr. King says, if that is your calling in life, then do it like Michelangelo painted. Do it like Beethoven composed music. Do it like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Do it in such a way that all the hosts of heaven will look over the balcony of heaven and say, there goes a great street sweeper to the glory of God and for the good of the gospel. That's how you and I should live. So when tomorrow morning comes, wake up, grab your coffee and your Bible, pray, and then go out and work to the glory of God so that the gospel will shine through you and men might see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Can we all stand? I'm going to close us in prayer this morning or this afternoon. And I just pray that somewhere in the midst of all of this that you'll find an application for your life. But it all starts with a relationship with Jesus. So if you need prayer or if you don't know Jesus, after I'm finished, there'll be friends. There'll be here at the front to pray with you. And there'll also be friends in the lobby for you to connect with. Let's pray. Father, we can't live your word without your help. And so thank you for the presence in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to live in a way that glorifies you. We pray for those non-Christian employers in our lives that you would minister to their heart and they would be convicted and come to faith in Jesus. We pray for those Christians who we work for, Lord, that we would honor them in our work all the better because of what you've done in our lives. For those who are in authority, May we remember that we have a master who is in heaven and that one day you're going to come back and judge us. So may we treat others as you have treated us until all have heard, until Christ returns. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said a big amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.